good morning, Northbridge. I'm excited to be here with you today. And Ryan, I want to say thank you. Um, I know some of you might know this, but I actually became a believer. The Lord brought me to faith my freshman year through crew and a staff member at crew. So thank you. The work you guys do in sharing the gospel and training people to know God's word really does change people's lives. But yeah, the way that he did that primarily, though, the Lord, was by having me ask and try to answer one question. What is worth living life for? In our chapter today, Hebrews 11, which often you might have heard it called the Hall of Faith, the author gives us a positive example of what is worth living our life for. Now, if you're like me and a bit thick-headed, check out the book of Ecclesiastes, where the author will go nonstop and tell you a bunch of examples of things that are not worth living life for. But hopefully, we will not be a thick-headed people. But if you are, again, check that out. Now, before we dive into our chapter, though, I just want to share a few things about me. The first one is that I grew up in Plainwell, about 10 minutes down the road. Second, my wife and I spent the last five years in Philadelphia at Westminster Seminary, where I got a Master's of Divinity and with an emphasis in counseling. But when we came back, we brought a few more people with us. So from smallest to oldest, we have Evangeline, who will be a month old tomorrow, Anastasia, who just had her second birthday last week, Ellie, our three-year-old who almost always has that same smile on her face, or she makes puppy dog eyes because she wants something, and then they all have their big brother, Titus, a nine-year-old. <coughs> the last thing, though, that you should know about me is that already you have seen the range of my emotional expression. This is about as far as it goes. And it is something that I'm working on, but please just know that I'm happy to be here with you, even if you can't tell. Before, though, we dive into chapter 11, it's important for us to spend some time understanding the first 10 chapters, because you can't just dive halfway into a movie and think that you're going to understand the plot. In the same way, we can't just dive into chapter 11 thinking that we're going to know well what the author is trying to communicate. But luckily for us, in chapter 10, the author, which is primarily the Lord, is summarizing what he has said previously. So follow along with me in verse 1 of chapter 10. But one way you can think about chapter 10 and really the entire book of Hebrews is to think that what the author is doing is he's contrasting the old covenant with the new and trying to help his readers understand what that means. So listen to verse 10 or verse 1 in chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So what we see already in verse 1 is he's talking about the law and calls it a shadow compared to the true form and the reality under the new covenant. Primarily, though, here in verse 1, what the author is doing is he's contrasting these sacrifices that are offered continually with Christ's once-for-all sacrifice that never needs to be repeated. If you, like me, are reading out of the ESV, you probably have that same heading in chapter 10, Christ's sacrifice once for all. Jump down then to verse 19, where he says, therefore. And what he's doing here is he's showing the readers the implication of this. The implication of this reality of what it means now that they no longer have to offer all these sacrifices. So 10:19. Therefore, brothers, 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up, he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the household of God. Where he goes from here, after summarizing again what he's already said in the first nine chapters, is he starts to give some implications to his readers. They're kind of commands, but they're the kind of commands that he knows his readers are going to want to do. In the same way, if I get home and I say, hey kids, let's go get some ice cream, I don't have to twist any arms. They're going to come running. But I think part of where we miss this a bit is that his original audience grew up not having this access to God that we have now that Christ has died and raised again. I think that's part of why we miss a bit the weight of these exhortations in 22, 23, and 24. Because for us, we take that for granted because we've only known what it's like to be on this side of Christ's death. But for his readers who didn't know that, this would have been incredible. Remember, most of them never were able to enter into the holy place. Most of them were kept at a distance. Well, now that's been open for them. And our author has three primary commands for them. In 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Again in 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then 24, which we often read as a call to worship here, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. From here then the author gives a warning in 26 to 31. But then he gives an appeal and an encouragement to his hearers in 32 to 38. And I want to read that because I just think that we can never be encouraged enough as God's people to endure and persevere. So follow along with me in 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. And remember back in 19, he says, since we have this confidence to enter and draw near, he's saying, do not throw that confidence away, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, and then he's going to quote Habakkuk 2 here in 38, 37 and 38 rather, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous ones shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 39 then is him summarizing the warning and the call to endure. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Right, so chapter 11, not unsurprisingly, comes after the last verse of chapter 10. And really what the author does here in chapter 11 is he's giving an illustration of what does it look like to be those who have faith and preserve their souls. Right, so that's the flow of this chapter. He's comparing the old and new covenant, giving a bit of a warning, and then an encouragement to endure, and then he turns to start explaining to them 
what this looks like to have faith and preserve their souls. So then let's continue in chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. All right, so our author, I think helpfully, starts with the definition of faith. And we can be pretty confident in it's a biblical definition because it's just right here in the Bible. Before we move on, though, I need to point out two things about where we're going this morning. The first one is that we're going to spend a lot of time just looking at the text because if we want to apply the text appropriately and accurately, we just need to make sure we understand what he's saying well because we're only going to be able to apply what we've understood. Second, you might notice some names running on the top. I'm just trying to keep a running list of all the verses we've read and the names of the people that our author includes in this chapter because I think that's helpful for us to keep in mind because after all, he's giving them as examples that fit into this hall of faith. So let's keep going in verse 2. For by it, which is faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So I want to pause here briefly and ask one question. According to this verse, what is it that pleases the Lord? Well, Northbridge, I don't think that it's actually faith. I think what he's saying is that without faith, it's impossible. Because if we want to draw near, we have to believe two things, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I think if we are to say that we believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him, but never actually draw near, that we're coming really close to what James says, that that faith is dead. I think one way to illustrate this is my wife loves when I call her to tell her that I care about her. It makes her happy. And I cannot do that if my phone is not charged. Now, my phone being charged, my wife does not care. It does not make her happy that my phone is charged. It only makes her happy when I make that call. So in the same way, if we are to draw near, we have to believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In that same way, if I want to call my wife and tell her I care about her, my phone has to be charged and I have to call her. But I think what we see here is that what actually pleases the Lord is that when we, because of our faith, draw near to him. Let's keep going in verse 7. Do you want to go forward a couple? Thank you. Um, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of that same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder was God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man in him, as good as dead, 
were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I want to pause here again, too, because we see here a theme that is all throughout the Bible, that the reality is God's followers, God's people, have always been strangers and exiles on the earth. God's people have a dual citizenship, one on earth and one in heaven. And the reason I think this is worth slowing down and pointing out is I think in America it's pretty comfortable at times to be a Christian, and sometimes I think we are more comfortable here than what we see biblically. Now, I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't enjoy where we live. I'm not trying to say we shouldn't want good things where we live. But my point is, if we think this country is our true home, I think we've missed some of what God has to say for us. And I think that we even see that a bit, especially this past year. In a lot of people, I think, even well-intended, but I think at times, some of the things that we even as Christians might say is that if this country goes this direction politically or the other direction politically, that's how we will be at home. But what I hope we see in this passage, and if you want more to look at with this theme, I would encourage you to read the book of First Peter, which is even addressed to elect exiles. But I hope what we see in this passage is that well, while we can want good things for our country, we as God's people need to be a people who desire even a better country, better than a Republican one, Democratic one, more liberal, more libertarian. We as God's people need to be a people primarily seeking the heavenly country that we see here in this text. So let's keep going in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive them back. I want to slow down here as well. Remember in 10.1, where the author says, the law is but a shadow, pointing forward to these realities. I think this is really clear. This is about as clear as we're going to get when it comes to the Old Testament. We have a father offering up his only son, receiving him back, back through resurrection. Just like Christ, right? The only son offered up who was raised through a resurrection. But the reason I think this is significant and why I want to slow down is that what we see is that the Old Testament all points forward to Christ. The New Testament is all looking back to him. But if we, as God's people and as Christians, are going to only hold half the Bible, I think we're missing a significant part of what God has for us. But even right here, though, we see, just like Jesus said in Luke 24, the entire Bible is about him, we can see that here. This is pointing forward to a greater resurrection and a greater sacrifice. Again, my point is just that we want to hold all of God's word because it's all about Christ. So let's keep going in 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. 
By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered that the reproach of Christ was greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now, Northbridge, I also want to pause here because I think this is one of the most encouraging examples, one of the most vivid with Moses. All right, look back with me at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So what we see is Moses who I'm fairly confident had a higher social standing than those of us here, he set that aside, choosing rather to be mistreated with God's people. I think there's something there that we can learn. I think that there are times in our culture, even here in the United States, where identifying as one of God's people carries some baggage with it, baggage that we'd prefer to not have, baggage that does cause some people to think lower of us. But like Moses... May we be a people who choose rather to be mistreated with God's people than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. In 26, too, we see that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Reproach here, I think, just means that he's insulted with Christ. He was willing to endure insults for Christ's sake. Right? That means it was okay for him to be a Christian if that meant people might think he was a bigot. If that meant people thought he was too liberal. If that meant that some people thought he was some kind of phobic. It didn't matter because being united to Christ and counted as one of his people was more important. And isn't that, isn't that kind of reminiscent of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are you when you endure insults and people revile you and utter all kinds of false things about you. Falsely on my account. In verse 29, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For a time would family to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. And Northbridge, I also want to pause here. I want to pause here, because although I've only been walking with the Lord for 10 years, which, to be honest, I know is a lot less than a lot of people in this room. And please know that that's an encouragement. 
It is great to be around people who have walked faithfully, faithfully with the Lord longer than I've breathed air. That's awesome. Thank you. But I still have a concern. I have a concern that when we think about this chapter, we think it ends here. We think that this is the point of Hebrews 11 and the Hall of Faith. The point is yeah, that these people accomplished great things, right? Isn't that always what the Hall of Fame is? But I think we need to slow down and ask a few questions here. And I think if we don't slow down, then we run into a bit of a danger in saying that if faith here means that Daniel stopped the mouths of lions, what about us? If that's what faith means, then doesn't that mean in my own life I should stop the mouths of lions? That I should get a promotion, I should get the relationship I want, the relationship I have should go the way I want. That my life should be easy, comfortable, and I shouldn't have to struggle that much in this life. But is that what this chapter is about? Did Abraham receive what he was promised? How about Moses? Right, I think sometimes we kind of forget that Moses wandered the desert for 40 years with people that complained nonstop. Right? Our kids are awesome when it comes to traveling. But every parent dreads, are we there yet? Can you imagine 40 years in a desert without air conditioning with the people that are just complaining nonstop? But listen then to Deuteronomy 34, 4 and 5. The Lord said to him, who's Moses, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I'll give it to your offspring. I've let you see it with your eyes but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. So if faith means that Moses succeeded in doing what he wanted with his life, even the thing that God clearly called him to, then Moses failed, and his life was a waste. Thank God for Hebrews 3, 5, right? Now Moses was faithful in all God's house and a servant, which means the point was not getting God's people into the promised land. The point was not conquering kingdoms. It wasn't quenching the power of fire or stopping the mouth of lions. Right? Look back at verse 13 in chapter 11. These all died in faith. Right? So far he's talked about Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah. They all died in faith not having received the things promised. That brings us back to our question when we pause here. What is the point of this chapter? Well, Northridge, I don't think the point of this chapter is the great things all these people accomplished by their faith. I think the point of this chapter is the great faith these people had, regardless of how things went for them in this life. And that's why it is so important that we do not forget these last couple of verses of the book of Hebrews, or the chapter of Hebrews, which, by the way, I think are some of the most encouraging and challenging in the entire Bible. Listen to him real quick. In 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, 
wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now, the reason I find these verses so encouraging is not because I like bad things happening to people. It's because it reminds me when I'm tempted to think that if I'm being faithful, things ought to go my way, that for a lot of history and for a lot of people, that is not the case. And it forces me to ask one question. If faith means I'll wander the desert for 40 years and die, not having accomplished what I set out to do, will that have been worth it? If faith means that our family moves to a place where it is not safe to be Christians and our kids are at risk and they even get hurt, would that be worth it? Another part of what I love about these verses is the author doesn't even finish his list of all the bad things that happen to God's people because of their faith when he just interrupts it and says, of whom the world was not worthy. So I think we need to stop here and ask ourselves a question. What does God have for us here in this chapter? Let's move on to verse 39. All these things, or I'm sorry, and all these. And again, I do want to pause here. Sorry, I'm doing a lot of pausing. And I want to read to you every single person the author has talked about in the Hall of Faith. And we're going to try and do it fast because it's a long list. But I want us to feel the weight of the illustration. Remember, this chapter is meant to be an illustration of those who have faith and preserve their souls, and he's given us a lot of examples. So I want to read those real quick. So in 39, all these. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Joseph, Moses, the Israelites who crossed the Red Sea, those at Jericho, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, those who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, those who remained strong out of weakness became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, to the women who received back their dead by resurrection, those who because of their faith were tortured, those who refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life, those who suffered mockings and flogging, chains and imprisonment, those who because of their faith were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, those who went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and caves of the earth. Our author tells us all these, although they were commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Right, and in case we think that this might just be this author reinterpreting some of the stuff in the Old Testament, think with me about one example in particular. Quench the power of fire. Right, in our small groups a couple months ago, we read this story. Right, not a rhetorical question, but who is he talking about here with stopping the power of fire? Any takers? Yeah. Yep, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In chapter 3 of the book of Daniel, they get told if they do not bow and worship, they'll be thrown into a furnace and burned alive. Listen to their own words in the book of Daniel. If this be so, that they get thrown into a furnace and burned alive, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods 
or worship the golden image that you've set up. Now, this is a little bit of conjecture because it's not in the text, but I think we can be pretty confident these guys had some personal buy-in. They did not want to be burned alive. But one thing that we can be more confident of, because it is actually in the text, is that more important to them than not being burned alive was being faithful to their God who had been so faithful to them, whether they quenched the power of fire or the power of fire quenched them. Now, in this example, God did graciously save these people, but he does not do that all the time. And we see this not just in the Old Testament and other places in the New Testament as well. Listen to Paul in Philippians 3.8, which I think is probably the most clear and succinct example of this, and my second favorite after Hebrews 11. So Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And Northridge, isn't this what Jesus had in mind when he asked, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Well, we see this reality that God's people have always drawn near to God, regardless of how it goes for them, in the Old Testament, in the New, but we also have seen it throughout Christian history. I think Jim Elliott is a really clear example of this. Some of you might have heard about him. He was a missionary who was killed by the people that he went to evangelize to. His life is a living example of this. But as well, his life was distilled into one quote that some of you maybe have heard. He says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Or one of the fa my favorite ways that I've heard it read, or said rather, is by a band called Beautiful Eulogy. Now they rap, and I don't remember I'm from Plainwell, but I'll read it for you. If you take the most precious parts of me and take my kids and my wife, it would crush me, it would break me, it would suffocate and cause heartache. I would taste the bitter dark providence, but you'd still preserve my faith. What's concealed in the heart of having is revealed in the losing of things, and I can't even begin to imagine the sting that kind of pain brings. I would never blame you for evil, even if you cause me pain. I came into this world with nothing, and when I die, it'll be the same. I'll praise your name in the giving and taking away. If I have you, I could lose everything, and still consider it gain. One word changes everything. On Northbridge, the one word that they're talking about is the title of the song, If. If. I have you. I could lose everything and still consider it gain. Well, what more shall I say? All right, time would fail me to tell of Polycarp, John Huss, Ridley, and Latimer. But let me just let you know, this life did not end well for any of these guys. They likewise were quenched by the power of fire. But Northbridge, be encouraged that they did rise again to a better life. And they all, if you have time, you should check out the um, stories we have of them, they all went willingly to their death knowing that they would rise again to a better life. But time would fail me to tell you how they did that because we do need to move on to applying the passage. But before we do, I just want to offer two summaries of the passage because we've said a lot and it is hard to apply a lot and it's easier if that can be more succinct. So there's a longer summary and a shorter summary. Personally, I like the long one because as you can see, it pulls on a bunch of verses 
from our chapter. But if you want the succinct one, I'll read that too. So our long summary of Hebrews 11. And remember, the author is giving us an illustration of what it means to be those who have faith and preserve their souls. So those who have faith and preserve their souls are those who consider themselves strangers and exiles on the earth. Convinced of things not seen, they desire a heavenly country. They consider the reproach of Christ more wealth than all this world has to offer, living not for this life, but for the better life that they have been promised. They are assured of this hope because those who have faith consider him faithful who has given these promises. Those who have faith are those of whom this world is not worthy. Or succinctly, those who have faith are those who value Christ above all else. So now how do we apply this passage to our lives? Well, I think that the first way that we apply this passage is by recognizing that when we sin, in a very real way, it's because we are not believing God. Sin is disagreeing with God about where the fullness of life and joy are found. Right, we see in John 10.10 and John 15.10, Jesus says he came that we might have life to the full. And in 15.10, he says, I've said these things which are about abiding in him and his word and obeying his commands. I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So when we think joy is found in our spouse being different over and above us being faithful to love our spouse the way God calls us to, that is disagreeing with God about where life is found. Or for kids, especially my kids who are watching at home, when your parents tell you it is time to go to bed or that you can't have another piece of candy, life and joy are found in trusting that the Lord gave you those parents so that it might go well with you in this life. Or for some, perhaps believing that a promotion even if you have to lie to get it, is better than living with integrity. After all, you can think about how much you might be able to give to a charity or to a church with that promotion. Or bashing liberals or conservatives be, to prove either how conservative or how liberal you are, or just to feel better, that that is where the fullness of life and joy are found. And can we just pause and imagine for a moment what the political landscape would be like in our country if rather than saying liberals are or conservatives are, if we took the time to recognize that there, are good, that there are good things on both sides and took the time to treat people the way that the Lord called us, recognizing that that is where life is truly found. Perhaps it's thinking that life is found in building our lives around comfort or entertainment. Rather than believing God, that we are here for the purpose to which he created us. Or, which is something that I fall into sometimes and is tempting for me, believing that my life will be better if my kids just do what I say. And now granted, they are supposed to listen to us. But there is a way that we can go about that that is missing the point and is missing what God calls us to. We are called to disciple them and train them in a way that keeps the gospel centered. But there is a way that is easier to get them to listen but that is not where life is found. But what might it be for you? Where or what are you prone to think is really the thing that will fill your life with joy? And my point here is just to recognize that often we think life is found in quenching the power 
of fire, when the reality is life is found in trusting God, whether we get burned in this life or not. The second way, though, that we can apply this passage is to recognize that when we see this happening in our lives or in the lives of others, that we don't need to say that these things are all bad, but we need to value Christ more. Think about Moses for a moment. He considered all the treasures of Egypt less wealth than the reproach of Christ. That's not to say the treasures of Egypt were insignificant, but that Christ was better. So Northbridge, let's be a people who, like C.S. Lewis says, trace the sun rays to the sun, see the gifts as pointing to the goodness of the giver. And when we do notice that we are not doing that, let's not beat ourselves up about it or beat up one another about it. Let's be a church, Northbridge, that encourages people to see Christ more accurately as worthy. Thirdly, the third way that we apply this, and this might be coming out of my counselor's mindset, I don't know, but I've spent a lot of time in my life talking to people who are struggling with anxiety or depression, especially now that I've started doing counseling more. And perhaps that's you, but if not, it's okay. You can still listen. But could I just suggest that if we're having a hard time getting our heads above water or keeping them above water, while we're probably doing a lot of good things, we might not be doing only the necessary things, but we might be doing a lot of other things that may be getting in the way. What I mean by this is do we have to love our neighbors? Yes. Do you have to invite them over for dinner every week to an elaborate meal? No. Do we have to care for those around us? Yes. Are we told what that has to look like? No. For Christians, there's a lot of freedom to exercise wisdom in doing what the Lord has called us to. But can I gently suggest that if we do these things that we have freedom to such an extent that we are not doing things that are non-negotiables, that's not very wise. For example, working extra hours at work to make more income is a good thing, but what about if it comes at the expense of raising your kids the way you're called? Or ministering to others and caring for your neighbors is a great thing, but what about when it comes at the expense of our marriages? Or being together and unified in marriage is a great thing, but what if you want that so bad that you will speak harshly to your spouse? Right, and again, I'm not trying to say that most of these things are bad, they're probably all good. My point is just to say that we need to be faithful first. And if we have more capacity after that, great. If we don't, great. We want to be faithful primarily. Now, the fourth way of applying it is a lot more practical. And if you want something to do, a action step, if you will, have a conversation with a friend and try to ask one question. What is it that's hard for you to see in your life that's less valuable as Christ? What thing, if God took it away, but you grew in your relationship with him, would not seem like gain? Talk to a friend about those things. For me, I know it would be very hard. If anything happened to my wife or kids, I have no idea how I'd go through that. I know the Lord would be faithful, but I can't stand here and tell you I know I will be. But what that does show me is that I have room to grow in knowing Christ and treasuring him the way that I'm called to. Now, you might have noticed that we actually missed verse 40. Well, I didn't miss it. I was just saving it for the end. 
So I want to read 39 again and verse 40. So if you'll turn there with me. All these, though they were commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. This gives us another question. What is it that God has provided for us that's better? Well, what God has provided for us is a better life. The life he intended in the garden, where God and man could be together without sin getting in the way. Right, this is paradise. This is the heavenly city that we see in our chapter of Hebrews 11 that gets talked about in the book of Revelation. In Northbridge, we're coming up on Advent and Christmas, where we celebrate Emmanuel, who is God with us. Jesus' life was not just about his death. He had to fulfill all righteousness, which, by the way, are his words, not mine, in order to secure this life for his people. So when Jesus, who is himself the resurrection and the life, which are, again, his words, not mine, when he was raised from the dead, all the promises in the Old Testament of a new heavens and new earth, a new era where God would dwell with his people, began. That means that when we are born again from above, by the Spirit, not the flesh, which are again his words, not mine. In a very real way, we now have two lives. We have one, an earthly one, and a heavenly one, where the, God, where the Lord gives us new desires, spiritual desires. The point is that it's these desires that are ultimately where joy and life are found, in eternity with him. Now, perhaps you might think that eternity with God does not sound better than a promotion, doesn't sound better than an easy life, than a comfortable life. Well, if that's you today, I have two questions for you. The first one, if you have none of this desire for spiritual things today, you may want to ask what you think about death will change that. The second thing is you may want to ask, do you even know this God? In the same way that if someone walked through the doors and tried to tell me that Hudsonville ice cream is better than Plainwell, I'm just going to have to assume they've never really had Plainwell ice cream. And you're going to say, you're going to have to try it. After all, what do you have to lose? I don't mean with the ice cream, I do mean with Christ here. The reality is, my friends, there are, there's two things. You have a lot to lose by following Christ. But the other side of that coin is none of it is stuff that you'll keep with you when you die anyway you're just going to lose it sooner. But you might find that in losing those things sooner that you've gained Christ in your very own soul. Now, for those of us who do know him but just find our desires for spiritual things are not where we want them to be, again, two things. It means you're human, but we also, to grow those desires, need to turn our attention to Christ more and more in his word and through his people. And interestingly enough, that's where the author of Hebrews goes. Look with me at chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, which I do think is primarily referring to chapter 11, but I think in principle applies to faithful believers all throughout history, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. 
Remember also in the application in saying that some of these things are good things, but we may need to set them aside that are not sin. Let we do that so that we can run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Northbridge, may we be those people who have faith and preserve their souls. But remember that we run this race primarily by looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. So I'm going to pray, and then I think John might come up. Father, I want to thank you that Jesus did so much in his life that we never could have hoped to do, and that he did that for the joy that was before him, the joy of securing eternity with his people, and that he joyfully then endured the cross. So as we are trying to run this race, the one that you've set before us, will you help us to be a people who are looking to Christ? And in our looking to Christ, encourage others to do the same. Because he truly is the only thing worth living this life for. Would you help us to believe that and to persevere? Would you do that for Christ's sake? Amen.